Hello, I'm James Richardson. Well, a new season is upon us and The Athletic have big things in store on the audio front. For a start, I'll be here three times a week with the award-winning Totally Football Show featuring the likes of James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Karl Anker and Rory Smith. Mark Chapman will go one better and bring you The Athletic Football Podcast four times a week powered by the cranial reserves of Adam Crafton, David Ornstein, et al. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast have had a brilliant Euros, thank you very much, and they are delighted to be returning for another full season of Women's Super League coverage. There's also eight dedicated club podcasts. There's Adam Hurry's joyous football cliché show. There's Michael Cox's insightful Athletic Football Tactics podcast. There's the essential TIFO football podcast and Whisper It, a revamped football manager show too. Ooh something there for everyone. You can find all of those wherever you get your podcast or listen ad free on the Athletic app. The Athletic. This is straight out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC pod from the Athletic. On today's show, Euro's euphoria for the Chelsea girls. Blues round off pre-season with a double-dub in Italy. And we're gaga for a young American keeper whilst Kepa's on the telephone to Napoli. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight out of Cobham. Welcome in again then, listener. Uh, we're back to two shows a week because the Premier League kicks off this weekend. We're very excited about that. We'll do a full preview of Chelsea's season on Thursday, we've got plenty of other stuff to talk about today, though. Joining me to do so, ah, oh, Liam Toomey, back from holiday. How are you doing, Liam? I'm good, I'm good. I think I've had more sleep than everyone else on this <laughs> on this podcast. So we're expecting you to be MVP of it. Uh, we've also got a full debut for Jesse Parker-Humphreys. Jesse's going to be with us throughout the season. You may well have enjoyed their work for The Analyst, Optus, The Offside Rule and more. You might have seen them on Sky Sports News of late too. Uh, great as all of that is though, Jesse, of more significance for us, is it your proper Chelsea, right? Yeah, um, I have been a Chelsea fan since I was four years old because my entire family are Arsenal fans. But um, <laughs> when I was at a kid's party, my friend's dad told me, don't support Arsenal, support Chelsea. And uh, here I am 23 years later. <laughs> and how did that go down with your parents then now? <laughs> I mean, I don't really know why my dad didn't put his foot down a bit more on this one, but uh, maybe he knew that uh, supporting Arsenal would be a, a poor choice for me to live my life and wanted me to be a happier person. <laughs> you just endeared yourself to every single listener um, with that. All right, we're going to talk Chelsea soon, but first, Jesse was at Wembley yesterday where something rather special happened. All right, listen, here in England, there's a celebratory mood across the land this Monday morning after Serena Wigman's Lionesses beat Germany at Wembley in the final of Euro 2022 on Sunday. Millie Bright and Frank Kirby started the final, which Jesse was lucky enough to be at. Um, a word on those two first, Jesse, because, I mean, everybody was exceptional all tournament, wasn't it? I was thinking about the, the England eleven, which started every game, and you can kind of make a case for all of them being MVPs, I think. But but Bright in particular, fantastic at the back throughout. And I guess it was made a little bit easier for her yesterday, given that Alexandra Pop pulled up lame in the warm-up. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the Pop versus Bright battle was the kind of the one that we were we were all looking forward to. You know, Pop had scored against every defence she played against so far in the tournament, but Millie Bright had been kind of the outstanding centre-back. And I almost feel a bit 
sorry for Bright because I felt like this was the game where she was, you know, kind of really going to cement herself as being like the outstanding centre-back from the tournament. But in the end, kind of the nature of, of how England had to play because Pop pulled out in the warm-up totally changed. And, you know, I think Bright had a had a solid game with without, you know, having to be totally exceptional, But to be honest. But I think you're right, Matt. Like, it really struck me that throughout the tournament, different players have come out in different games and, and really made a difference. And I think that's been the real strength of this England team under Serena Wiegmann is whether you're in the starting 11, whether you're coming off the subs bench, everyone's taken to their role and, and taken that next step when they've really needed to. Liam, we've spoken about Fran a lot in recent months and throughout this tournament too, but it's worth reiterating, isn't it? What a kind of superhuman feat it has been from her to go from an oxygen tent in April to a Wembley winner in July. It really is amazing. I mean, I think, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of reaction, a lot of understandable kind of shock and concern when she posted that picture on social media because I think Chelsea had kind of protected her from from everyone and sort of managing her situation. We know Emma Hayes has always been very, very protective of Kirby and, and, and very understanding of of the problems that she's had to deal with in her career. But it just feels like everyone um, and primarily Kirby, obviously, has managed this recovery perfectly and timed it perfectly to the point where not only could she feature in this tournament, she could make a real meaningful contribution and be a key starter and a, and a key part of England's starting game plan as like the brain of that starting attack. And I thought that was something actually Serena Wiegmann did really well in that she had two separate units, didn't she, to start and finish games up front. And they both worked really well in very different ways. But Kirby was integral to the success of that first unit and maybe not necessarily her most impactful game in the final. Uh, but everyone will remember, you know, some of the great passes she's played in the tournament. Of course, the the chip she scored earlier on against Sweden. So... Yeah, I think she's she's had a great personal tournament and every time she succeeds, I think it feels that bit better to watch her succeed because of everything she's been through. Felt a bit for Beth in England, Jesse. I mean, she didn't get a single kick, did she, throughout the tournament? She did a really good job of looking happy anyway during the celebrations, but it's got to be slightly bittersweet for her. Yeah, I guess that's the flip side, isn't it? When we talk about how amazing those units have been for Wiegmann in terms of the, the starting teams and finishing teams, it is ultimately you don't get much room to to bring on all your different options. You know, even also Jess Carter as well only kind of got a, a handful of minutes against, against Northern Ireland too. So I think it's a real shame for Beth, but it, it's hard to look past um, Alessia Russo, at least as that as that second substitute. I mean, Beth's in a really hard place within that team because you've got Ellen White, who, you know, she's the, she is the Linus's all-time top scorer. You can see why they want to start her still, even though I think this she's probably maybe the one player in that starting eleven who you would say never really caught fire at any point in the tournament. And then Russo offers kind of something totally, totally different when she comes on. And I always feel like Beth Ingram's a player who kind of takes both of the, the best elements of those games and, and brings them together, but maybe just, you know, ultimately... The amount of minutes she managed to get at Chelsea, the, the form that she had this season just just wasn't quite enough for, for Beekman to look at her and say, yeah, we'll give it a go. And I mean, I think also it probably just speaks to the kind of profiles Beekman wants to play, because I think generally we've seen that the minutes thing doesn't have to be an issue for her. You know, Frank Kirby's the, the case in point of that, right? She didn't really play since January and then started every single game this tournament. But yeah, I mean, it would have been a great experience for Beth, I think, regardless to have been part of the squad at the very least. And I think you do genuinely feel that regardless of the amount of minutes players got that there is still a really 
close-knit group within that 23. Um, and, you know, Beth's not alone in that squad in, in not having had any time across the tournament. And from a Chelsea perspective, we're, what, five weeks from the start of the WSL season. I guess you wouldn't expect there to be that much of a, a negative effect in, in terms of fatigue or, or a hangover for, for Chelsea, particularly ahead of the new season, because there's such a big split, isn't there, of Man United, Chelsea, Man City and Arsenal players in that England squad or in squads that went deep into the tournament. that It may be going to affect everybody to the same extent. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how it plays out in terms of how much time off players get and things like that. I think... You know, from a Chelsea perspective, I kind of feel like it's worked out quite well for us. You know, like Sam Kerr's already back in training. Um, Penilla Harder went out quite early. Uh, Magda Eriksson also went out. So it's gone well, I think, for us in terms of having players back on a different time scale. You do look at like a, a Manchester City who maybe have a bigger set of England players um, there who also played a lot more minutes and then think, oh, well, you know, is that going to be be trickier for them? You know, you look at like a Lauren Hemp who's played, I mean, basically every minute of this tournament. You know, she's the only one of those of those attacking players who's who really stayed on for all of the games and think, well, is that going to be a big push for them because they've got to go into Champions League qualifying as well? And I think, again, the we'll see with Chelsea the importance of of winning the league and not having to go through that Champions League qualifying, which which City and Arsenal will have to do kind of at the start of the season. All right. Well, the WSL season kicks off on the second weekend of September. We'll do a full preview of that nearer the time. Next today, though, back to the boys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Chelsea and Udinese played twice over the weekend. On Friday night, supporters watched on in what was the more official of the two games. They followed a behind-closed-doors match on Saturday, which existed to make sure everybody got minutes and journalists could type XI in Roman numerals. Always good to see that in pre-season. Um, Friday night, the team that started was Mendy in goal, Azpilicueta, Thiago Silva and Koulibaly as the back three, James, Kante, Jorginho and Alonso, and then Mount, Havertz and Sterling. Um, Liam, that sounds pretty close to Thomas Tuchel's first choice 11 to me. Yeah, I would say with the possible exception of Chilwell for Alonso, it was pretty much the team that I would expect to start against Everton if everyone's fit. We wrote earlier in the summer that we had been told that Tuchel was recruiting with an eye to giving himself an option to switch to a back four. Um, And I still think he has that in his mind, but I don't think Chelsea have got the business done in, in this window to the point where a switch like that is viable. And we have seen him look at it across the friendlies, but I I think he's still most comfortable keeping Chelsea in that back three and naming that team and that system against Udinese, I think was tipping the hand towards what we're likely to see against Everton. He'd already kind of hinted that he was going to use Koulibaly on the left of the three, even though that wasn't, I think, the intent. When, they, when Chelsea signed him, he he was the left-sided centre-back at Napoli, albeit in a back four. So it's not that big a transition for him. Um, and of course, Chelsea had a right footer there last season in Rudiger. He does still want a left-footed centre-back. He would love Kimpembe or, you know, I mean, it looks like Ake, that deal is dead now. But Chelsea is still looking for an actual left-footer in that position. But it certainly seems like Koulibaly is going to start the season there. And then when you look at the attack, 
Sterling was always going to play. And I think Havertz and Mount are the only two attackers from last season's squad that have Tuchel's full confidence or close to it. So it's no surprise to see that unit already taking shape. First half goals from Raheem Sterling and N'Golo Kante had the Blues up at the break. Kante with an excellent solo goal to put Chelsea ahead and then Sterling with a bit of a lucky one. Uh, Gerard Deolofeu replied for Udinese at the end of the half, but Mason Mount added a late third to give Chelsea a bigger margin of victory. It's funny, isn't it, Jesse? You know, after the Arsenal game, we're all panicking, going, oh, no, definitely can't play four at the back. They don't look fit. This is atrocious. And now, hey, look at this team, creating loads of chances, scoring wonderful goals. Fabulous. Um, it, it's sort of important psychologically, right? You wouldn't have wanted Arsenal to be the final game before Everton. No, I mean, also, I always find it very bizarre when you play like close league rivals in preseason. It just feels like you're shooting yourself in the foot kind of whatever way, way it goes. But and it's the nature of preseason as well, isn't it? When something goes badly, you think, oh, my gosh, this is it. The, cancel it already. Let's all go home. And then you're like, oh, OK, we can kind of beat this Italian team. Maybe we will be all right. So I think until you, you start seeing how the lineup plays out and, and how players actually look within the the actual season and and I think players always go up a level right as well once once the season begins that's that's only the true time that you can start to really think about how the rest of the season is going to go I agree with everything Jesse said the only thing I think you can really take from pre-season is that it can sometimes be quite indicative as to the mood of the coach of the players and we've seen it in the past at Chelsea that looking good in pre-season is not really a predictor of anything Looking really bad in preseason, really unhappy can be. Um, we've seen plenty of Chelsea coaches walking around with, you know, thunderous expressions, moaning to to journalists off the record and during preseason tours. And it's gone badly when the real football has started. Um, I don't think things are at that stage with Tuchel, but he hasn't struck me as being overjoyed with the way things have gone. I think Chelsea have done a lot of travel. Uh, I don't think any coach like Tuchel likes this type of pre-season. It exists for commercial reasons. All of this travel, all of these different time zones. I think Tuchel would much rather have just had like a training camp in Austria or something for, for about three weeks with about four games thrown in and some real time to work with players. And of course, more signings than he's got. So I, I, I don't think Tuchel's overjoyed with the way things are and the way things, the way Chelsea stand going into this new season. But in, in terms of the results, yeah, as Jesse said, there's not really many conclusions you can draw. N'Golo Kante didn't do much travelling, uh, as we know. Where are you on, on him, Jesse? Obviously, his contract's coming to an end, what, this time next year, but he sort of underlined his importance here, didn't he? Is it, Tuchel says he's, he's our salaries, our De Bruyne. Do, do you rate him that highly? Do you think he's still there? Is him plus one in midfield? I think the problem with, with Kante feels like the consistency issue. And yeah, you look at him when you think, oh, he looks like he's had a he's had a good rest and he's really got like the legs to kind of make that impact that maybe we saw a couple of seasons ago. But when you're kind of comparing him to the the Salah or De Bruyne's or those really central figures in other teams, you just think it doesn't necessarily feel like he can still do it week in, week out. And I think obviously with, say, you know, Conor Gallagher or someone like that coming back into the squad and maybe having more uh, ability to switch out those midfield players that will allow Kante's minutes to be managed better throughout the season so like when he is playing we're really going to get to see the best of him but just last season it just felt so choppy in terms of his fitness and then consequently the performances that came after that but yeah I mean in in the highlights from the Udinese game I 
thought he looked exceptional. So, and again, that kind of goes back to what Liam's saying as well, you know, the benefits of of not travelling to the other side of the world and how much impact that can make on, on players' performances too. Mm. Right, so that was Friday night, less than 24 hours later, Chelsea back at the Dacia Arena, where those who hadn't started on Friday got a run out. The team that began that game was Kepper in goal, back three, Chalaba and Padusar, uh, Ruben and Chilwell as the wing-backs with Kovacic and Gallagher in midfield. Ziyech, Broya and Pulisic was the front three. Uh, Loftus-Cheek in first half stoppage time and a Ziyech pen 11 minutes after the restart got the job done here. We, we mentioned about the um, the three at the back coming back. Jesse, do you think that that's where Chelsea are going to be for the majority of next season? As Liam says, it's kind of signings permitted, but that's the tried and trusted for Tuchel, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like it's the th- the system he's most comfortable with. And again, when when we haven't had the signings in early in the window, Tuchel doesn't feel like the kind of manager who's going to want to, even if those players come in, necessarily be able to tear everything up and kind of start again halfway through the season or like, you know, even September kind of time. Um, so I think obviously maybe if there had been more signings made earlier on and there'd been the opportunity to kind of go through those games at the back four, we'd see something different. But it feels like at the moment, the and I think, again, the, the attacking players kind of come into this as well is because you kind of think, oh, do you want the back four to be able to kind of fit more attackers in? But when it doesn't feel like there's a, a whole host of them there for Tuchel to trust anyway, then you're like, well, maybe you do just go with that kind of Havertz, Mount, Sterling trio and, and then you're not necessarily looking. But I guess the other thing to think about is is the number of players there are. And, you know, I think this is why I'm really intrigued by Conor Gallagher this season because that feels like a, a player who, if he can take that step up and, and can force his way into the team, that's then when you're looking like, well, do you just want to have that midfield too? Because there are so many players in and around there, you know, when you're looking at Jorginho Kovacic, can't take, like, who, who are you sacrificing there? So I guess it maybe feels like that's the kind of thing where it almost depends on how players further up the pitch perform in terms of, therefore, what, you, what spaces you want to make for them by, by changing between a back three and a back four. Uh, we saw Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Liam, at right wing-back here. He, d- he did it in the Bernabeu, amongst other places last season. I- is that a realistic place for him to get a lot of minutes this season or is that just kind of pre-season fodder? Again, I don't think it's something we'd be seeing right now if Chelsea had done all the transfer business that Tuchel wanted. Um, he-, he wants wing-back cover for Reese James or cover slash competition. This is why... You know, we've we've reported over the weekend that Chelsea are chasing Denzel Dumfries from from Inter. They are still looking at right wing backs as well as central defenders. But in the meantime, it is an opportunity from Loftus Cheek's perspective to at least get on the pitch. And if Chelsea do stick in in this formation, it's not necessarily great news for the forwards in terms of available spots. But it's not great news for the central midfielders either because there's only two of them rather than a 4-3-3, which would probably be Loftus-Cheek's natural formation, probably Conor Gallagher's too, as as a as a number eight rather than a number six. But I think Loftus-Cheek is of the mindset that he he, he just wants to play for Chelsea and, and be as important to Chelsea as he can be after all the injuries that he's had and all the other setbacks he's had in his career. So if he has to play at wing-back, he will. But it's pretty clear that from Tuchel's perspective, it's, it's a... It's a sticking plaster rather than a, a proper tactical solution. 
As a Chelsea supporter, Jesse, what's your view on Loftus-Cheek? Are you kind of frustrated that, that he hasn't hit the heights that we thought he might? Or is it, was it all down to that, that injury in America before the Europa League final? Do you think he can be a key contributor for Chelsea at some point? I think it's a tough one. I think, yeah, it, it feels so frustrating when you see a player kind of pick up an injury like that when it just feels like they're about to take off. But I do feel like you know, thinking about the kind of Fulham loan and then last season, you have like slowly seen him on an upward trajectory. And I think, you know, purely from a fan point of view, there is a lot about Ruben that I appreciate just in terms of genuinely wanting to play and genuinely wanting to make an impact when he is on the pitch. And I think, you know, Chelsea aren't necessarily blessed with a whole lot of players who feel like playing for the club and for the shirt is almost like the most important thing above everything else. And I think that's something that, that is very endearing about him and makes it hard to feel like, you know, like think about like moving on or something. And ultimately, you know, you need these these squad players. Like we've seen this through throughout seasons. There's so many games, the World Cup as well. Like everything's going to have, this season's going to look like no other, right? And I think in terms of having players who are both flexible uh, tactically in terms of where they can play and kind of willing to put a shift in regardless of where that is, is going to be so key as as we move through the year. All right, so that's pre-season. This time next week, we're going to be analysing an actual game where points are at stake. Next today, though, we'll do some transfer talk. This season, following your team on The Athletic is better than ever. Our brand new match blogs give you real-time updates so you'll get all the stats you need to know as they happen, from XG to XA, from progressive carries to PPDA, and so much more. You'll now get the same level of unrivaled insight from The Athletic during the 90 minutes as before and after kickoff. The Athletic's match blogs are the essential companion for everything you need to follow the game. See for yourself on The Athletic app and at theathletic.com. Uh, Liam, looks like Kepa to Napoli is getting some traction. I guess the key thing here is is how much of his wages Chelsea are prepared to pay to, to put him in the shop window for a season and, and from his perspective to get him in the Spain squad for the World Cup. Yeah, and it sounds like they might have to be prepared to pay quite a lot of his wages. Um, given the other moves that Napoli have made this summer, the players that have left the club, it's clear they've got a broader drive to trim their wage bill, which jars pretty massively with bringing in the world's most expensive number two goalkeeper. But for, for Chelsea, I think they're, they're at a point with Kepa where there is no other option. It's not tenable to go into another season, particularly as, as he seems to have recovered at least the bulk of his confidence and, and got back psychologically to roughly the point he was at when he joined Chelsea. Um, it's not tenable to go into another season with with him just backing up Mendy and playing the odd cup game and playing the odd league game, depending on, you know, Tuchel's whim on that particular day. Um, he needs to go and play regularly. It's the only chance that Chelsea have of ever being able to sell him. Even then, they're going to have to sell him at a loss and they're going to have to sell him on, on the buying team's terms, um, which is something we've seen with a lot of players that haven't worked out at Chelsea. So I, I would I would expect it to get done just because I think Kepa's desperate to go out and, and play regularly. The the World Cup is hovering for all of these guys. You know, he's probably looking at it thinking, if David De Gea doesn't have a great start to the season, we've already seen him make one bad mistake for Manchester United in pre season. That Spain number one spot could be there. 
could be there for for Kepper as it, as it was before. So he he needs to go and play. It seems like Napoli are the only big European club looking for a high profile starting goalkeeper. And so Chelsea, if they can get even a chunk of his wages off the books and maybe sign a lower cost experienced goalkeeper to be the the number two this season in front of Bettinelli, that could be a workable a workable solution. It does give Chelsea a problem though, doesn't it, Jesse? Liam's mentioned it there, but in terms of a number two, we're expecting this 18-year-old Gabriel Slanina, sorry for butchering your name, Gabriel, uh, to come in from Chicago Fiber, then go straight back there on loan. But you need to get a number two, don't you? Because it's probably not going to be Bettinelli. But then you've got people like Nathan Baxter and Jamie Cumming, who both did really well in EFL loans last season. They're doing the same again then. So if you bring in somebody else, you're kind of writing those two off. It's difficult to bring somebody in who's a number two. Are you going for, I don't know, pick some sort of random 40-year-old off a bench in some top five European league and say, we'll have you for a year or two? Get check back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a tricky one, isn't it? I someone once said that um, you know, Kepper as your number two is like the most luxury goalkeeping option uh, out there. And it's definitely felt like it, I mean, it's obviously been a, a massive frustration, but given, you know, like William said, it felt like the confidence had come back, he had put good performances in, you're like, well, it's not bad number two to have as an option. And uh just in terms of who you put there, it's it's tricky to figure out and it's obviously hard just because of the nature of of how, you know, even if you look at the long, younger guys, how do they get the minutes to kind of prove they should do that? And I think the problem is as well is you can just end up in a situation where if Mendy picks up an injury, then that's it. You're going to have to play that number two kind of nonstop. So you need to make sure that they're ready to, to step in. Uh, yeah, obviously, Slonina's kind of a, a one for the future look as well and I, I guess yeah I, I mean I don't know like is Bettinelli like does he have the capacity to kind of step up and and play in that number two role he's obviously like very well liked within the club but when can you go from being the kind of third choice to the second choice I don't, I don't know yeah it's interesting he did play pretty much a full season the season before last for for Middlesbrough but only one game for Chelsea last season. Uh, elsewhere, Jules Kunde, we know he's gone to Barcelona now. Sevilla's sporting director, Monchi, had some interesting comments to make last week about why he didn't end up joining the Blues. Kunde, that is. Speaking to Sevilla TV, he said, earlier in the summer, there were more clubs interested, but by last week, the only club was Chelsea. Last Thursday, we had a verbal agreement with Chelsea and Chelsea had an agreement with the player. The player was sold to Chelsea. It was all agreed, but then doubts appeared, not about the player's quality, but about his profile, whether they preferred a different type of player Barca only appeared for the first time at the weekend. That's, this seems pretty extraordinary to me, Liam, that you can be linked with a player for over a year and then just as you're about to sign the contract, say, actually, he's not for us. Is, is Monchi telling the truth here? Did Tuchel decide that he didn't fancy Koundé? What, what actually happened? Well, I think there's some fudging of the timelines going on here from, from Monchi because Chelsea's doubts about Koundé are primarily from Tuchel and they've predated last week shall we say he wasn't he wasn't overly bowled over by the prospect of signing Kunde last summer he still wasn't convinced that he was the defensive solution this summer Kunde is someone that Chelsea's recruitment staff have watched for a long time they're very high on him they're not alone in that um a lot of elite european clubs are very high on on Kunde as a center back Tuchel was less convinced and there was a suggestion that you know his height is a part of that. The fact that he's five foot ten, bit of a question mark about how he would deal with the the greater 
aerial bombardment that you might face in the Premier League, even though it's not 1995 anymore. You know, the teams aren't playing with it. Not every team has a Duncan Ferguson these days. Um, so th- the bottom line is Tuchel wasn't convinced about Kunde, And you saw that as soon as the takeover was completed and Bowley started um, directing or started looking to Tuchel directly for recruitment steers, it was Delict, it was Koulibaly, it was other defenders, it was Ake, it was Kimpembe. Kunde was put on the back burner. And if you look at this from Kunde's perspective, he's entitled to, to feel a certain way about that. You know, Chelsea kept him waiting all of last summer. He was convinced the deal was going to happen. He wanted the deal to happen. And at the very last moment, well, Chelsea say Sevilla moved the goalposts in terms of price. Um, but for whatever reason, Chelsea walked away um, and he was forced to wait another year. Suggestion was he wasn't overjoyed to be at Sevilla last season. He wanted to move on and he, he didn't have the best season in part because of that. And then this year, they didn't give the impression that he was their priority. Um, and it's very possible as well that Chelsea weren't Kunde's priority. And as soon as Barcelona emerged as a possibility, it's easy to see why Kunde would might rather stay in Spain and join a bigger club in Spain and, play, and of course playing for Barcelona always has a lure for, for all sorts of players. So yeah, this was a messy one. Absolutely. Sorry, no, no Barca puns intended there. <laughs> this was a... Even by the standards of this strange transfer window, this was a, a very a very messy saga. But ultimately, Chelsea don't have Kunde because they didn't want him enough. If they wanted him enough, they could have signed him last year. If they wanted him enough, they could have got this deal deal done earlier in the summer. But they had different defensive priorities. And by the time they came back for Kunde, he he wasn't overly keen. And, and he decided to do a Rafinha and wait for Barcelona. Um, and now Chelsea are in a tough spot because they've missed a few defensive targets. Uh, and as the window goes on, as you near that deadline, your your options narrow and the prices tend to spike. Jesse, we often talk about signing players as being like a statement of uh, faith by a, a board in a manager. But I guess this kind of is too, isn't it? Even though it's the opposite. It's, it's as we expected, Todd Bowley or whoever, taking Thomas Tuchel's opinion as the one that matters the most. And all right, well, if you don't really want him, then then we'll look elsewhere. Puts a bit of pressure on Tuchel, that, I guess. It does. And I think it's something that feels quite strange from a Chelsea perspective, because obviously under Abramovich, it felt like, you know, because you, you couldn't rely on a manager being there for more than a blink of an eye. It, well, I mean, obviously they'd maybe go for targets that fitted into managers' systems and then they moved on. And that's how you kind of get the situation we're in now, right? Which is where there's like this strange hodgepodge of players from a load of different systems, some of whom, you know, want to leave, want to move on. And then you're left with suddenly a load of holes in your defence because you're trying to fill in loads of them. But, you know, it is obviously a vote of confidence in Tuchel. I think the only kind of question mark is, well, what happens if it doesn't work out? And then once again, you've got a whole set of signings that have kind of come entirely from one person. And that's why most clubs do kind of use directors for football and and kind of recruitment departments you know obviously what's happened with Chelsea and the ownership and Bowley is a, is a totally exceptional situation so I can kind of understand why you would specifically lean on Tuchel in this summer but you do kind of have to worry as well we don't know what Bowley is really going to be like in terms of backing a manager and and whether that this is like a totally 
you know, new situation kind of in the way that like Liverpool back Klopp kind of no matter what and have their faith in Tuchel or, or if, you know, what does happen if six months down the line, Bowley thinks, well, this isn't quite working how I expected it to. Uh, Fafana, Pavard, Linked, Liam, is it going to be one of those where it goes right to September the 1st, do you think, and, and we end up with some kind of random centre-back coming in? Hiya, Papi Gilavoggi. I think that depends how aggressive Chelsea are in terms of what they're willing to offer. You know, there's been a suggestion that they're hoping to get Fafana for a lower price by offering players in return. If that's the case, I don't like their chances and... I think this could this could drag on um, because Leicester history suggests sell on their terms, and when they sell, they sell for big prices. You know, Kante is the only real exception to that in terms of key players they let go, and that was because he had a release clause. They've made very very good profits on everyone else. They're not they're not silly. They know Chelsea need a defender, so the leverage is on their side. Fafana's on a long contract. He's a very um, he's a very desirable asset because he's he's one of the brightest young centre-backs in Europe. So that's not going to be an easy negotiation. But there won't be any easy negotiations at this stage of the window because the, the real football is upon us now. And if Chelsea have a bad start to the season and they're shipping goals in the first few games, that equation gets worse for Bowley when he tries to sit, sit down to talk to clubs because it, they've already been at a disadvantage for most of this summer. Everyone knows Bowley is learning on the job. Everyone's been chancing their arm, all these different agents, all these different clubs trying to see what they can get out of him. I think the one good thing Chelsea have done in this window is that they've they've avoided completely being taken for a ride and doing really silly things that it could take several years to recover from. There hasn't been a summer of 2017 trolley dash <laughs> signing players that Chelsea have no business signing. They've They've signed two players. You can probably question the contract's in both cases that they gave to Sterling and, and Koulibaly, but they are good players that will help now. They're certainly not, it's very hard to see them being disasters. And there's nothing that you'd look at at the moment to say someone like Michael Edwards or Paul Mitchell would be less likely to want to come in as sporting director because you've completely kneecapped them with the business you've done in this window. You know, that that's not nothing, but the real test will come in the next couple of weeks because the pressure is going to grow especially if Chelsea struggle in, in the early weeks and, and Tuchel's demeanour reflects that and he's maybe lobbying behind the scenes for more signings. The pressure's going to grow on Bowley and we'll see we'll see whether he's able to hold the line in terms of not doing anything silly and finding that balance of getting Chelsea's business done but on terms that are reasonably good for Chelsea. Uh, Outgoings-wise, Jesse, we, we've spoken a lot about this potential as Pilaqueta and Alonso double move out to, to Barcelona. What, what are your feelings on on Pilaqueta? Because it, it feels like it might be quite a sad end to what's been a, a glorious Chelsea career. Yeah, I mean, from Pilaqueta's side, I can totally understand the draw of wanting to go back to Spain and play for Barcelona. I, I can see why that, that would be something he wants to do. But I think, again, it's kind of frustrating when these things aren't figured out within a season. Again, the nature of both Chelsea's business side of thing and Barcelona's business side of things is it's kind of like unsurprising <laughs> that that's the case. But you want, you know, your club captain to be able to kind of have the farewell that that he would deserve. And, you know, he's a player who I still think is incredibly underrated in terms of his uh, contribution to both Chelsea and the Premier League. But yeah, I think 
again, this this feels just like the the general frustration within this transfer window from a Chelsea perspective is. I totally agree with Liam, and I think you know to get Koulibaly and Sterling in feel like two really good, sensible signings, and I'd always prefer to, you know, go go with the kind of less is more approach than being tied into these these players that you've paid loads of money for, who then who then turn out to be absolutely useless. But again, then when you're looking at your outgoings as well, and it still doesn't feel entirely clear of of who is leaving and and who's going where, then you're also then in the position of, well, you know, do we need to bring in? another left wing back are we keeping Emerson you know like how does all of that play out when when we still don't know whether say Aspilicueta and, and then Alonso are going uh, Liam a couple more to finish on potential loans depending on which paper you read and believe Timo Werner to Newcastle and uh, the Athletics Peter Rutzler reporting that Fulham are having a look at Malang Saar I guess the the Werner one like the Keppel one might come down to wages and, and Saar as we've been talking about maybe dependent on getting somebody else in so that he can go out well, everything with Werner comes down to wages, I think. Um, it's not a situation where Chelsea are going to realise a, a big transfer fee for him. It's very unlikely. And it, it, you know, If even Newcastle, with the money they've got behind them, are talking about taking him on loan, that probably tells you that there isn't a, there isn't a big market here. I, I still think, ideally, Werner would probably like to go back to the Bundesliga. The problem is he's financially moved beyond the reach of pretty much every Bundesliga club bar Bayern Munich. Um, and I think there is some lingering some lingering uh, complications with any sort of Werner move to Bayern Munich based on the fact that they kind of messed him about. Um, they were close to signing him before he went to Chelsea, the year before he went to Chelsea and then pulled out. And I think he hasn't forgotten that. RB Leipzig might be good, but again, they can't pay the money he's on at Chelsea. So it's it's similar to Lukaku in that if he was going to go back to Germany or even maybe go to a club like Newcastle, he, he would have to make some sort of financial sacrifice in order to prioritise playing. And in, and in a World Cup year, that's very possible um, because players will be looking at it differently, particularly someone like Werner who is looking to, to play a significant role in a very competitive Germany squad. Um, but that's far from cut and dried. And with Saar, I think him leaving would be very good news for Levi Colwell um, in terms of his chances of real minutes at Chelsea this season. Never got the sense that, that Tuchel really trusted Saar. I think he used him last season because he had to. They didn't have a lot of options on that left side of, of defence. But he, we kind of saw in the minutes that he did get why he wasn't totally trusted. He had good games, but he had some very, very shaky ones as well. He's very raw. So a season on loan could probably be good for him, or maybe even if Chelsea can realise some value, some proper value, if Fulham are willing to pay a proper price, that might be something for Chelsea to really consider. What have happened to short-term loans, by the way? Everything's got to be a season these days, hasn't it? You think with a with a World Cup coming, you could just say like, hey, have a four-month loan and then we'll review it and get back. Was it Danny Drinkwater was the last one at Chelsea to, to Burnley on that six-month loan to start the season? Yeah, it's not very common. That. The better. <laughs> <laughs> Not very successful in that case either. All right, that's just about going to do it 
for us here today. In terms of other Chelsea content on The Athletic, we've got Simon's piece that he mentioned on Thursday about Chelsea holding on to Azpilicueta. Uh, he's also contributed to a piece where Athletic writers discuss Premier League players ripe for loan moves. Charlie Webster is the Chelsea boy uh, included in that. Simon's also written a Chelsea season preview. Um, Liam, are you going to pull your finger out and do some work at some point? <laughs> I just thought I'd let Simon do most of the heavy lifting. He's doing Everton this weekend as well because I'm on holiday again. Um, it's absolutely scandalous. But yeah, in the in the couple of days that I am actually deciding to to do what I'm contracted to do, um, I'm pulling together a, a sort of transfer notebook um, for the start of this week, which is kind of a, a what we're hearing about what Chelsea might be doing in what we're expecting to be a very big week because this is this is Todd Bowley's last chance to give. Um, Tuchel some reinforcements before the Premier League starts Um, so we're expecting them to at least be very active in trying to do deals and then beyond that I'm going to be contributing to our season predictions where we all predict where everyone's going to finish in the table to make us all individually and collectively look like fools Excellent. That's just reminded me that producer Lucy and I need to sort that out for the midweek show too, to make us all look like fools. Um, again, athletic.com slash Chelsea pods, the place to go to sign up if you're not currently a subscriber. Jesse, I really hope you got some time off this week because you've been working pretty much every day for what, the last month? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to having s- some sleep because I don't think I've had about more than four hours since uh, yeah the 1st of July. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, good luck with that. Jesse's going to be with us throughout the season. We are very pleased to say we're going to be back later on this week when we'll do a season preview ahead of that big game. Kicking off at Goodison Park, the new season for the Blues getting underway Saturday of this week. Do join us for our season preview later in the week if you can. From all of us here, here, though it's bye for now the athletic